Our scripture reading today is from Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cult tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the cult, its owners said to them, why are you untying the cult? And then they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the cult, they sent Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Shannon, for reading that passage this morning, Palm Sunday. A couple things before we get into the message. Uh, There are black notebooks on your aisle. If you wouldn't mind filling those out and passing them down, we would love to have a record of your visit with us here this morning. If you're new here, uh, personally, I'd just love to have your mailing address so I can send you a card this week. Uh, So that's something I like like to be able to do. Um, And uh, also, we don't pass an offering plate during the service, but you can give. The ways you can give to Christ Prez uh, you can go online to christprez.org slash give. We also have an offering box there in the back of the room. Of course, this church is uh, supported uh, fully by the tithes and offerings of the congregation, and so um, wanted to mention that as well. Okay. I grew up in a little farming town in Indiana. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that about me because I, I loved it. Uh, I had an idyllic... Childhood. I had a. Uh, um, we we lived in the country. It was a gravel road uh, on an acre and a third that was a big that was in the middle of my grandfather's property. He was a uh, a gentleman farmer. He he leased his acreage to the farmers around, and he was a gardener. And he had he just loved to grow things. He he would grow everything. One year he he planted a row of turnips that was about an acre long and a, about nine feet wide. Uh, I don't know what you, he wasn't a, a turnip, you know, uh, monger, uh, but he would come by regularly, Floyd was his name, and he would come by and he would say, you guys need to pick some turnips, uh, they're starting to go bad, and we have 400 pounds of turnips, we don't know what to, to do with these things, but he just loved to grow things and watch them grow. One of the things that he grew uh, in Indiana was bamboo. Uh, and he had this stand of bamboo that he would grow. Uh, it was this big chicken wire circle 
full of all his leaves that he would rake, and every, every spring bamboo would come up, and, and, and at the end of the season, he would cut it all down and haul it out to uh, the woods, which was just down the, down the lane from where the barn was. And every year he did this, and as a little boy growing up, having a fresh supply of bamboo every year was amazing. Because you can do anything with bamboo if you have an imagination for it. He was a saver. He loved, he, he saved baling twine and milk jugs and, and all kinds of things. And as a kid, I remember having, we had a creek in front of our house. This little thing, it was probably at its widest was maybe eight feet wide. And most of the places in that creek was about five feet wide. And it was maybe, maybe a foot deep uh, most of the season. And I remember as a kid seeing the bamboo and thinking, I could make a raft out of this. And then I was like, I'll get some baling twine and I'll get some milk jugs and I'm going to build a raft and it's going to carry me from Buck Creek in front of my house to Cicero Creek, which will take me to the White River, which will take me to uh, the Ohio River, which will take me to the Mississippi River, which will take me to the Gulf of Mexico. And I could already feel the freedom of this new life that I was going to embark upon. And so I brought all these things, and I was smart, and so I decided to build this craft on the banks of the creek so that I could just set it into the water as soon as it was done. So I take all this stuff, I got this bamboo and milk jugs and baling twine, and I get it all down to the creek, and I start building this raft, and it becomes apparent to me, after I'd sunk about an hour and a half into the project, that I don't know how to make a raft. And I'm trying, and in my mind it's supposed to work, but it's just not. It's flimsy, it's falling apart, it's not making any sense. And that was the day... I remember my first earnest prayer. And this was the prayer. God, if you love me, make this thing work. And I have to tell you, I meant that prayer with every fiber of my being. I wasn't kidding. There was something in the cruelty of the universe that I was experiencing in that moment that I was holding God responsible for, and I was giving him a golden opportunity to demonstrate his kindness to me. And it shouldn't be that hard, you know? And I worked and I got it together and I started to set it into the water, and it just disintegrated in front of me. I think about that. I think about that day because because it's not the only time in my life I've had moments like that, where I've thought, God, there's something that is so plain to me that you should be doing. Why aren't you doing it? What is that for you? Where in your life is God withholding something from you and you just can't for the life of you understand 
Why? Why are you withholding something? Or maybe there's something that he's introduced into your life and you don't know why he's doing this. Maybe it's a sorrow. Maybe, maybe he's saying no to you for something. Maybe there's some unexpected burden that has come into your life. It's funny, it was, it was, a, child, it was a child's prayer and yet it came from a very deep place. And it's a place that I know is still in me. And it's a place where everybody I meet has that place. I know it. I see it in us. What's the dialogue that happens between you and God at that point when he doesn't give you what you think he should? What are the questions that come up? What are the statements that you make? What are the demands? I'm giving you an opportunity to prove that you love me. We are so tempted to supply reasons for why things don't go the way we want them to. When something happens that we don't understand, we're very tempted to just try to figure out what must be the reason for this. There has to be something, some lesson God wants me to learn, some sin that he wants me to pay for. What is it? Why do we do this? Why do we try to supply reasons for things that are happening that we don't understand? Why do we feel like we need to know why things are happening? What's going on inside of us when this is the driving force in our hearts? Make, I, I am owed an understanding, an explanation of this. That's what I want us to kind of focus on this morning as we talk about the triumphal entry. And what we're going to do in this process is we're going to get a hold of some truths that will guide us when things are happening in our lives that we don't understand. But I am not talking about tools that will help us understand. Because often that just simply isn't afforded to us. Things happen in this life and we don't get to know why. Ephesians 3.20 tells us as much. It says that God is always doing immeasurably more than we ask or think. And so it is also true that God in his merciful wisdom withholds understanding from us in some things. And so the question is, what can I know? What can I know? as I walk forward into the unknown or as I walk forward into at least the partially veiled? What can I know? What can I trust? How can I have peace? There are a few episodes in Scripture that are more widely known than the one that we read about today, the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday ranks easily in the top five Christian holidays, right? You've got your Christmas You've got your Easter, and then what? Somewhere in those next three, right? You've got Palm Sunday. It's one of those things that is so widely known and also widely misunderstood. It's misunderstood by us, and it was misunderstood by people on the hillside who were doing the thing of laying down their palms and their coats and praising Jesus. It's misunderstood by the Pharisees. So is this event 
when Jesus rides that foal into Jerusalem? Is it a cause for the response that he got? Is it a cause for celebration? Or is what's happening there, is it a strategic misstep? Is it confusing? Why did it even happen? Why were the people even there on the hillside? What was Jesus doing? So many questions. What do we learn about Jesus' response to the people crying out to him? God tells us to hide his word in our hearts, and one of the best ways that I know how to do this is by way of the imagination, is to take a story and to unpack it and try to imagine it. Because if we can imagine a biblical story like a scene from a movie, we can access it, right? We can access it later through our mind's eye. And so I want to do that with this passage, this story. I want us to take it apart and then draw some applications. There's a lot of history converging in this moment on that hillside. And it's raising a lot of questions, like why do the Pharisees want Jesus to stop it? Why are the people there with Jesus with their palms and their coats and their songs of praise? What are they doing? I'm going to look at 1 Kings 1 in just a moment to get a better understanding of what's happening, but these are some of the questions. What is Jesus doing? What, what's, what's happening here? But So let's start with some geopolitical stuff that's going on on the ground. Let's talk about Rome and the Pharisees for a moment because there's an interesting relationship between them. Roman rulers were vicious, but they were also very shrewd. They knew that if they were going to try to overcome and rule a religious people, people who were dedicated to their religion, then Rome would do very well to leverage that devotion to their advantage. And that's what happened with Israel. So rather than blot out all things Jewish from the people of Israel, all things religious, instead what Rome did is Rome went to the religious leaders and they put them in charge. They put them in charge of the temple, which is why, for example, you have have Jewish temple police in the passage. If you've ever wondered, why are there temple police here? It's because Rome put the Pharisees in charge, and the Pharisees hired a police force to, you know, serve and protect. And so what Rome did is they conscripted the Jewish religious leaders into peacekeeper roles on Rome's behalf in exchange for some religious freedom. And that is the very definition of shrewd, right? The deal went like this. Rome said to the religious leaders, here's your job. Maintain peace among your people and keep them paying their taxes to Caesar and we will let you conduct temple business as your tradition dictates. And if your people get out of line, we will take it all away. So the religious leaders, they had this deeply invested interest in making sure that their own people didn't get too excited about someone from among them opposing Rome. And so this is why, during the triumphal entry, 
the religious leaders came to Jesus and they told him to make the people stop praising him. And they told him in a way that was kind of like this, Jesus, you see how problematic this is. You understand, as well as we do, that if you let them continue to do this, we've all got a problem. And so they tell him, you make them stop. Because Herod, he would shut him down in a heartbeat. You know why? There's only one king, Caesar. So they're serious. And they have something to lose here. And then you've got Jesus and the people on the hillside. What's happening there? Because it is a little odd if you stop and think about it. I mean, as a kid, you take it for granted. They say, you know, you'll, you'll go back into the children's ministry and they'll say, you know, they got a colt for Jesus and they put him on it and he rode up a hill into Jerusalem and people laid down their coats and their palms and they sang praises and the kids will say, got it. But then we get older and we say, wait, 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 wait. Why are they there? How did they know? Who told them to show up? Why coats and palms? What's the behavior here? This doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes perfect sense, actually. It's a little bit of a flash mob is what happens. But the people are gathered there. John, in John's gospel, he tells us, Luke alludes to it, but John tells us forthrightly that the reason they're there is because of what happened with Lazarus. They know that Jesus raised somebody from the dead who's like really alive, and he's alive right there in Bethany which is just on the other side of the valley from Jerusalem, the valley that Jesus is riding down in this colt. Lazarus, by the way, is who he was staying with the day before this happened, having a big party. Lazarus was dead for four days, and now he's just fine. And the people knew about this, and they're overcome by the possibility of what this could mean for them, that they have a rabbi who can overcome death. If he can raise the dead, what scope of power does he really carry? Because, see, here's the thing. What was Rome's power? What was the thing that they exercised for control over people? It was the fear of death. But if Jesus could undo dying, then what could Rome really do to them? Maybe this was a sign that he was going to deliver them from Rome. Maybe Rome really had no power at all. Maybe he could turn things back to the way they were, to the time of David's Camelot. See, remember, Israel had deep memories and rich stories about God's intervention and salvation in their midst. The fact that they existed at all was a miracle. And King David was at the center of their story. In 1 Kings 1, it's the very first chapter in 1 Kings, we read the story of Solomon's coronation. And as we read it, it starts to get really familiar. It's not unlike the triumphal entry at all. Here's what happened. When Adonijah, one of David's sons, he tried to take his father's throne, take David's throne. David was old. He was about to hand over his throne. Adonijah sees an opportunity and steps in. And so he holds a coronation service for himself. And he doesn't invite David. He doesn't invite Solomon, who David had already said was going to be the one who would take his throne. Solomon was born to him with Bathsheba. 
And, he does, and, they, and Adonijah doesn't invite any of David's other key people. It's a total power grab. But when both Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet, you remember Nathan the prophet? Nathan the prophet was the prophet who sat down with David and told him the story about these two farmers. One had as many lambs as he could possibly want, and there was this other farmer who had just one, and he loved it like it was his own child. And the rich farmer took the poor man's lamb, and he sacrificed it and ate it. And David said, that guy deserves to die. And Nathan said, you're that guy? That Nathan? When Nathan and Bathsheba heard this that what Adonijah was doing, imagine the strange friendship that must have existed between the two of them, this connection they had. They appealed to David to keep his promise to make Solomon king when he died. And so I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings 1, 32 to 40, the rest of this story. King David said, this is after Bathsheba and Nathan, Nathan went to him, King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down Gihon. That's right where Jesus is riding. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Mm. And then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen, may the Lord, the God of my Lord and the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord and King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Do you see what's happening? David is arranging... For the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan to escort Solomon into the city. It is a royal procession of a prophet and a priest and a king. And Jesus is all three of these in one. And the people recognized what he was recreating when he rode that colt up into Jerusalem. This was a coronation. And this is why the people called him king. It's why they responded to him like this. His ride was a royal procession on the same road as Solomon. But nobody really understood what he was doing. That's the thing. They're building their raft by the side of the creek, thinking this is going to go a certain way. And there are two groups there that are doing this. You have, on the one hand, the desperate, and on the other hand, the controlling. Which one are you? Here's the desperate. The desperate are the ones saying, Hosanna. Hosanna is a word that means save us now. It's not a name, it's a plea. And what their cry is to Jesus is change everything. Make it better. Make it work. Make it good. Deal with everyone and everything that is opposing us and keeping us down. That's the desperate. 
And then you have the controlling, the Pharisees. What are they saying? Theirs is the opposite. Their message is don't change a thing. This situation is fragile enough, but it works. So shut down the cries of the desperate, hold the line, and don't let things get out of control here. Neither group understood what was happening. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. In fact, when he rode past them all, it went against the will of what each one of them would have preferred he'd do for them. Now, who are we to presume we are any different along those lines? They had their ideas. They just didn't understand. And Jesus rode past them. He rode past their hosannas. And part of the prayer that I want for us in this passage is ride past my hosannas. Because what do we know? In light of all this, what can we know as we move forward in faith when we don't understand what's happening around us? Four quick things. First thing we can know is that Jesus sees more of our present situation than we do. We think we've got a handle on it. He sees more of it than we do. I should assume in any struggle that there are many important and highly relevant details that I just don't see. But Jesus does. So that's the first. He sees more of our present situation than we do. That's something we can know. What else can we know? We know that he knows the unfolding story, and in knowing the unfolding story, he tells us not to fear. That is a message from Jesus to his people. Do not be afraid. The worries that we perceive based on what we understand about our struggles pale in comparison to the struggles that Jesus knew plagued all of humanity. And he knew the lengths to which he would go to address those struggles. So he knows the unfolding story and he tells us, you don't need to be afraid. Third thing we can know is we can know that Jesus goes beyond the surface of things to the heart. He goes beyond the surface of things. We stand on a hillside asking him to be our king there. But Jesus rides past that into the heart of the city where he provokes his own crucifixion. He overturns the money changers' tables. If you're going to be around and you are able to do it this week, uh, we're going to be having our noonday services for the first time in our own place here. They'll be about 25 minutes long, so good for a lunch hour. But we're going to go through the events of each day of Holy Week starting tomorrow. Uh, we'll do communion as a part of it. Uh, but one of the, the, it's one of the things that he did is he, the, the Monday after Palm Sunday, he went into the temple and he overturned the money changers' tables. He told the religious leaders, this entire place belongs to me. We know, we can know that Jesus goes beyond the surface of things to the heart of things. And the last thing we can know, that we can know that we can know, is that Jesus' motivation is always perfect love. It's always perfect love. Whatever it is that he's doing when you don't understand it, his motivation is perfect love. Jesus told his disciples, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And this is what he's in the process of doing 
when he rides past their hosannas. So Jesus didn't come to make this present kingdom just a little bit better. Jesus didn't want in that moment when I was on the creek bank to say, man, I'm on thin ice with this boy. I better make the raft work so I don't lose him. What he said to me instead, as I look back on it now at 48 years old, is he said, you don't know this, but in this world you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. He tells his people, you're heirs to my kingdom, citizens there. We have to get this. Nothing you are going through is beyond the wisdom of Christ. Nothing you are going through is outside of the reach of his power. Nothing that you are going through is driven by anything other than his love for you. And so as hard as it may be, may our prayer be ride past my Hosanna. Ride past my cry for him to stop and be king over the present reality as I understand it. And know that when he does, it is only because he is doing more than you could ask or think. And so may the Lord ride past our Hosannas. May the Lord ride past my cry for deliverance. If what I want to be delivered from is not what he means to deliver me from. May the Lord ride past our cries for him to make this kingdom just a little bit more livable. Because he didn't come to fix our kingdom in the way that we understand it. Instead, may he anchor our hearts in the living truth that he is making all things new and that he is ushering in a new kingdom. And do not be afraid. He hears your cries for salvation. He knows what you need better than you do. Amen. Let me pray. When I'm done praying, by the way, the kids are going to come in with their palm branches, and it's going to be awesome. Don't tell them that I said ride past our hosannas. They're not ready for that. <laughs> Father, I thank you for uh, the way that you give us things like Palm Sunday that you and your wisdom know will be something that children will latch on to as a very tangible way of understanding who you are and what you've done that in a very simple way they will understand that you are worthy of praise and trust. Lord, as we get older, our, our desires for you to prove yourself trustworthy become more complicated because we think we see things plainly when we don't. Give us the ability to trust. Give us the grace to trust, the maturity to trust that you are motivated by a perfect love and that you see more than we can see and that we have no reason to be afraid because you are good. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.